All right, welcome to Surreal Politics, Stage 1, Episode 9. We titled this episode, Free to Decline, on this uh, May 15th, 2023 is the current year. Um, you know, New Hampshire, where and I presently reside, is home to a political migration movement known as the Free State Project. Many years, in what could fair, many years ago, I should say, in what could fairly be described as another life, that project was why I moved to this place. It seemed, at the time, a viable strategy for accomplishing a worthwhile goal, and though neither aspect of this proved accurate, I have fond, if often painful, memories as a consequence of embarking upon that journey. It's quite doubtful we'd be having this conversation, save for that choice, and so whatever else has happened, I'd rather be here with you today than drinking myself to death in New York. There are a lot of different conceptions in people's minds as to what libertarianism is. One could say that the complaints that I have about the movement have nothing to do with libertarianism as such, because on paper that's unassailably true. Libertarianism fundamentally is the idea that the only legitimate use of violence or coercion is in defense of person and justly acquired property. It's not preoccupied with whether or not you approve of homosexuals and it considers inequality a wholly natural state of affairs. Rejecting initiatory violence, it necessarily rejects the state because, of course, that is its entire purpose and sustenance. To quote a fiery line from Murray Rothbard, which illustrates our point, quote, There runs through for a new liberty, and most of my other work as well, a deep and pervasive hatred of the state and all of its works based on the conviction that the state is the enemy of mankind. Not mincing words there. Murray Rothbard was never known to do stuff like that. Being one who views leftism as just such a threat and observing that the state is leftism's most jealously guarded weapon, it seemed to me that Mr. Rothbard had a point. To abolish the state would be to abolish the left, I then believed. Without the welfare state interfering in the Darwinian process to subsidize the creation and survival of unfit forms of life, without it financing the dubiously named non-profits and non-governmental organizations or NGOs, Without public sector unions, public schools, armies of bureaucrats, and the air of legitimacy that the state power endows their sick plans with, by which they dupe good men into their service, preying on their patriotism and sense of duty to have police and soldiers violently impose their monstrosities upon their fellow citizens, I once thought that without these things there could be no such thing as a left. And at the time, I'd not have missed the right much. I hadn't much use for religion. I rather enjoyed my vices. Though I considered Fox News preferable to CNN and considered John McCain a lesser evil than Barack Obama, I felt betrayed by the George W. Bush administration, and McCain's support for bank bailouts rendered it hardly worth the trip to my old elementary school to tick a box for him. Not that my Republican vote would have made a lick of difference in New York. It seemed to me that there was a lot of that going around at the time. No chance to make a difference. Too much in common between the parties. In 2012, Mitt Romney won the Republican nomination, defeating my favorite candidate, Ron Paul, handily. Well, if Barack Obama's left wing and Mitt Romney's right wing, I was going to need a third position of some sort. And so I moved to New Hampshire and became an advocate of secession with the aim of creating a stateless territory here. But it didn't take long for me to see some of the problems with this. Almost immediately upon my arrival here, I discovered a leftist advocacy which did not endeavor to carry out its sick designs through state force, at least not by outward confession. They purported to be anarchists. They purported to respect private property even, but they were obsessed with homosexuals and they considered demographic disparities to be some sort of unnatural evil born of state-sanctioned malice. 
largely emanating from a group calling itself the Center for a Stateless Society and basing their supposed libertarianism on a fake economics text called Markets Not Capitalism, these raving left-wing fanatics gave the Democrats a run for their money. Among my first interactions pertained to the death of one Trayvon Martin. This, it seemed to me, was the most libertarian of events. A man took it upon himself to guard his own neighborhood in the capacity of a volunteer. He carried a weapon with him while he did so. He was assaulted by a criminal who threatened his life, and with all other options exhausted, he fired into the man who had visited this violence upon him. George Zimmerman was put on trial for murder. He was acquitted by a jury of his peers, and the Democrat Party and all of its many tentacles branded him a murderous white supremacist despite his Jewish surname and Hispanic ethnicity. My new neighbors, who would vigorously deny any affiliation with the Democrats, said to me, it's a crime to be black in America. Desirable though this may be to some, it is not actually the law here. Quite to the contrary, blacks are among the groups protected by America's civil rights laws, in contrast to whites who are not. And of course, my new neighbors, in all their zeal to abolish the state, thought not that this inequality was of any priority to do away with. And the warnings just kept coming. It, it seemed obvious that the abolition of the state would entail a martial conflict to me. I mean, that was just almost went without saying. An institution built on the premise that it has the absolute right to use force for its purposes is doubtless going to insist that challenges to this claim will be rebuffed by such means. And a movement which saw this claim as illegitimate would, would by necessity be asserting that it was legitimate for them to use force to stop them. I was hardly the first one or only one to notice this, but I was uniquely signaled out for expulsion from the Free State Project for making this observation. As if to drive home the point that there was an ulterior motive, the very next year after I was expelled, the FSP invited Larkin Rose to be a featured speaker at their annual Porcupine Freedom Festival. He'll be a, a featured speaker again this year. Mr. Rose famously wrote an article titled, When Should You Kill a Cop? And this article was then read aloud by Mr. Rose and incorporated into a number of slickly produced propaganda videos advocating the slaughter of law enforcement. I later came to suspect that my new neighbors had spotted me for a right winger before I did. An organized effort was underway to run me out, and though it met stiff resistance, the most generous financiers were among those making the push, and I was consequently relegated to the margins. And from those margins, I observed the downfall of this movement and found myself greener pastures. Next month marks the annual, the 20th annual Porcupine Freedom Festival, or Porkfest as it is often called. This was the premier event of the Free State Project, the libertarian movement really, and it once attracted libertarians from all over the world. It has declined precipitously since my departure, though I don't think myself the cause of this, only one of its many symptoms. When I first attended, I believe it was in 2011, the event was glorious. It was really great. I mean, you know, Ron Paul was on the tip of every tongue. The speakers were economists and philosophers and geniuses of various stripes. The event is set at a campground in Lancaster, New Hampshire. And uh, the event is uh, set at a campground in Lancaster, New Hampshire. This place is so beautiful, though if you come from afar, you'll pass so much beauty on the way that you may become accustomed to it by the time you get there. Vices were indulged, I myself partook, but it, this event was by no means centered around such things. Most political events I've attended serve alcohol, and it just so happened that this one also had a great deal of marijuana and mushrooms and that sort of thing. It was not made hostile to families by this. 
the libertarians I knew then understood that with freedom comes responsibility, and to corrupt children was no way to get along with one's neighbors. Gays were tolerated, of course, and treated with the same respect as everyone else. Even then, though, perhaps just a little bit more, since they did have one event during the week specifically geared toward them, titled Buzz's Big Gay Dance Party, the eponymous event was uh, conjured from the mind of a lesbian calling herself J. Buzz Webb, and at the time nothing foreshadowed the bitter enmity that would later emerge between us. I had struck up a conversation with a pretty girl who was no lesbian, and we got quite friendly. She asked me to come with her to the big gay dance party, and I adamantly refused. I'm not gay, I told her, are you? She assured me she was not, in more ways than one. But it was sort of deemed that this was expected of me, that by refusing to go, I was somehow expressing disapproval, and as it turned out, I was, which I didn't think to be such a big deal. Live and let live seemed to me the libertarian way. You go have your big gay dance party over there, and I'll keep on doing my hetero thing over here with the pretty girl. Not such a big deal at the time, but I did meet some social disapproval, and while I thought this curious, I didn't much care. Later years would come to feature panels on polyamory, a degenerate sex cult which only thinly disguised its contempt for the family. Ethical non-monogamy, they like to call it, or consensual non-monogamy, or ENM or CNM, all the jargon that make up the indicia of a cult. It's a form of statism to demand that your partner be faithful to you, they say. Freedom is the freedom to penetrate and be penetrated without consequence. Birth control has, in the snap of the fingers, abolished all human drives and realities that once came with the burden of pregnancy, which is now seen as a harmful side effect of failing to take one's medication. It might go without saying that gender, being an oppressive social construct in their view, had to be abolished along with the state, and inevitably this leads to transgenderism. I was informed not long ago that this year's Porcupine Freedom Festival would feature one or more of the much-talked-about Drag Queen Story Hour events, which have caused so much trouble in recent years. That inspired today's theme. I went to go check the schedule, and I hadn't spotted anything officially sponsored, but if I was sexually grooming children, I might make some effort to disguise the activity myself. Porkfest still markets itself as a family-friendly event, you see. It's right there on the front page of the site, and I, I have a screenshot of this in the, in the show notes for today. You only want the parents. Uh, there's, a, there's a picture of, like, a beautiful white child, like, hanging upside down from, like, a, like a jungle gym or something, uh, a young girl. And, uh, you know, the, the parents who buy tickets for that young girl, you don't want to tell them uh, that you're about to tell her to take testosterone and uh, cut her breasts off when they arrive, okay? So, you know, you got to keep this kind of thing under wraps. Not that they have been exactly sworn to secrecy about it, though. A woman calling herself Bonnie Freeman, who purports to be married to a friend of mine, announced on Twitter that, quote, also, you might not want to go to Porkfest because a ton of us were planning kid-friendly drag shows on our spots. This tweet was in reply to another tweet from an account that is now suspended from Twitter because that's what happens when you come up against the lobby of the Rainbow Mafia. Freedom of speech today includes sexually grooming children, but not criticism of this behavior, even under the tutelage of Elon Musk. The good news is Mrs. Freeman's announcement met near-unanimous hostility from the ensuing comments. I should emphasize the near part was entirely unanimous. Dennis Pratt was a notable exception. He is prominently featured throughout the site's schedule, uh, on the website and describes himself as, quote, designer and chef de village of our most recent and most successful versions of Porkfest. He states in relevant part, quote, 
this year, some folks were very concerned. He puts very concerned in scare quotes because, you know, why would anybody be concerned about child drag shows, right? Uh, because there might be somewhere on the 116 acres of Porkfest some guy dressed in drag reading Tuttle Twins to a small group of kids whose parents consent, by the way, of course. As long as, long as the kids say, you know, as long as the parents like, go ahead, turn my child out. That's fine, you know. Mr. Pratt assures us that nothing uh, of the sort is on the schedule yet, but if one were to be announced, quote, it would be dutifully included in the schedule along with hundreds of other attendee-created events. And if you don't like that, Mr. Pratt has some advice for you. Quote, if the idea that someone somewhere within a mile radius of you might be doing something you personally don't like, Porkfest is just not the festival for you. Well... That might well be the case, you know, if you think that it's not okay to sexualize children with drag queen story time, then maybe, maybe Porkfest is no longer for you. And that's a terrible shame because once upon a time, it most certainly was. And that has changed. Now, my guest this evening, he disagrees with Mr. Pratt. He calls himself N of One, and he's the founder of something called Liberty Plus. I stumbled upon it browsing the Porkfest schedule, and uh, he'll be hosting a talk during that event titled Good Night Alt-Right and Hello Liberty Plus. Now, you might guess an event titled Good Night Alt-Right with a name, uh, with, uh, with an alternative reminiscent of Atheism Plus would be the perpetrators of many a drag queen story hour themselves, but my investigation turned up a decidedly different result. Uh, on their website, as I went through it, I, I pulled out some, uh, some choice quotes here. They state, our long-term goal is to neutralize the effect of the liberal world order herein condensed to system has on our lives. They describe critical race theory as Europhob europhobic pseudoscience. Egalitarianism is, in their view, quote, the putative rejection of all social hierarchy. Social justice warriors are people who hate existence generally and their own identity specifically. They say, quote, the natural order of things is impossible without differentiation. And this is what makes egalitarianism, to use Rothbard's term, a revolt against nature and a hatred of the good for being good, to use Rams. What drives SJWs is a will to entropy, seeking always the limpid embrace of vast, undifferentiated primordial sludge. The egalitarian utopia is the heat death of the universe. And worth quoting at length here, before I bring on our guest, are three paragraphs describing the dead wood of the libertarian movement and how Liberty Plus stands in opposition to this. And so, let me uh, read this to you. The dead wood in today's liberty movement are of two camps, SJWs or left libertarians and liberal chauvinists who often call themselves anti-SJW. The former are egalitarians who view liberty as a means to equality. As far as visible worldviews go, left libertarianism is a special kind of clownage. Anyone with eyes can see that free people are not equal and that equal people are not free. While left libertarians are a specially stunted breed of globalist useful idiot they have within the liberty movement, useful idiots of their own comprising the latter camp. These liberal chauvinists are pompous, oblivious egotists who derive an inordinate amount of self-esteem from owning the SJWs in debate, which is at this point a facile pastime. All this amounts to is reiteration of what everyone already knows, that SJWs are not liberal. 
If these chauvinists merely confine themselves to intercourse with SJWs, they'd only be wasting their own time. However, not only do they punch left, but also right, denouncing uh, big-brained, uh, I'm sorry, denouncing pro-liberty reactionaries as racist collectivists or right-wing SJWs. In their onanastic drive to posture, big-brained, enlightened, centrist, too often ref- uh, too refined for the primitive pandemonium of tribal identity politics, they unwittingly marginalize globalism's only real opposition and massively undermine the quest for liberty in our lifetime. The basic problem with giving rise to this sor- sorry sort of affairs is unquestioning belief that the Enlightenment, including its political philosophy of liberalism, represents a quantum leap forward in the history of ideas. The essence of its reactionary critique is this. There are many ways for a string to be flaccid, but only one for it to be taut. The absoluteness of natural law is no less singular, and due to the brutality of nature, most worldviews, being copes of timorous, hairless apes, are quite flaccid in many ways. The Enlightenment, though it did produce Certain ideas of merit is no exception. The worst idea it produced, however, is a very bad one indeed, that tolerance is a virtue. Tolerance is indifference to degradation, and the degradation and defeat that the liberty movement has endured over the decades is a direct consequence of its enshrinement of tolerance born of a perceived filial duty, uh, filial duty <laughs> to uphold such Enlightenment values. It is fitting that liberalism and libertarianism are cognates as both aspire to the same ends, peace, freedom, and prosperity. The albatross of tolerance, however, is reason enough alone, though far from the only reason, to regard kinship between these views as a travesty. The foundation of liberty is property, and property is defined by discrimination and exclusion, the very antithesis of tolerance. Liberty Plus is the jettisoning of the liberty movement's dead wood. The plus sign in our name is multi-layered in meaning, but the most concise conception is this. The liberty movement plus character. We advance liberty by awarding membership only to liberty lovers of good character, which here includes objectivity about globalism's anti-white animus and that which constitutes normal, healthy, and pro-social behavior. Anyone who apologizes for the globalist agenda of white replacement is not of good character. Anyone who stigmatizes an individual for availing herself the life-saving utility of a group discrimination is no better. Apart from the problems described in the preceding paragraph, the liberty movement also suffers from being so simply from being simply too big of a tent due to the capaciousness of mere desire for greater freedom as a criterion of participation. There are many bad reasons to oppose the regime as well as good ones, and allowing people in for such malcontent alone causes a debilitating proliferation of satanics, degenerates, and perverts. Anyone who attempts to normalize deviant behavior, especially by representing such behavior as concomitant with liberty, is a very bad character indeed. And so intrigued by reading this, I just had to reach out to the, uh, the operators of that website, and the founder graciously accepted my invitation, and with this, I welcome him. N of one. Thank you so much for joining us on Surreal Politique, sir. You're most welcome, Chris. <clears throat> I'm delighted to be on your program. Well, I'm, I'm quite the fan of yours. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm very delighted to have you here. I have to say, it's quite startling to hear one of my articles uh, read aloud at that length. And uh, notwithstanding, yeah, the verbosity of <clears throat> my prose, I, I hope that at least elements of that resonated you on 
well, I'd say like both an intellectual and perhaps a more visceral level. I, I would hope that at least people like you and many others, I think, in liberty space would find themselves, you know, like pumping their fist a, a little bit to some of those lines. I um, certainly did. I, I think that um, you make a very, very strong critique of the uh, of the status quo, shall we say. And I think that you do so very eloquently. And speaking as a guy with a flair for words myself, I think uh, I think you have a very good you have a real talent for this. And uh, and so uh, I was inspired to uh, like I said, I was I there was a few things where I took a line here and there and I was like, well, I just I can't take a line. for I got to read at least these three paragraphs. And so uh, I thought it was very good. And I, I'm, I'm sure the audience uh, is uh, is thrilled as well. And so, how long ago did you uh, did you endeavor to start this project, my friend? I it, dreamt up the concept uh, about a year ago, and it was another, uh, I'd say, about six months uh, before I um, hired a, a developer and uh, launched the site. Okay, and um, do you? Uh, what would you care to share about? What led you to that point? Well, it depends on uh, how much time we have. Um, we have I'm, until eleven thirty. Oh, thank you, uh, eleven thirty. Uh, excellent. So I, I think that affords me to uh, give you a little bit of personal backstory to this. Uh, so I'm a pretty bourgeois, college-educated uh, white guy, millennial. I hail from coastal Maine. Grew up in an affluent uh, little tourist town there, and uh, was had an interest in politics, um, but I was also pretty apathetic about it for a long time. Having studied economics in college, I concluded that the whole system was more or less in um, a, a moribund equilibrium. We couldn't really do much to change it. Um, but then, uh, like so many others, I, I was red-pilled by life, uh, going to graduate school in the big city, um, actually witnessing race riots firsthand, um, then uh, living in New York City for a while, uh, driving with Uber, actually, um, listening to the Tom Woods show, uh, radicalized me as libertarian, the abuse I endured at the hands of New York City Hall, driving with Uber, further radicalized me, and back in my apartment, uh, through like Stefan Molyneux and the so-called Alternative Influencers Network, um, I was also awakened to the truth about globalism. And I realized that our, our situation is uh, facing demise, uh, that the situation is dire. Um, just a guy like so many others who wanted to be left alone in peace and quiet, um, just to pursue my hobbies, you know, make a career as a systems analyst, data analyst, what have you, um, academic backgrounds in uh, economics and finance. Uh, and, you know, enjoy some tennis, video games, uh, just a boring bourgeois, um, but, um, but happy life. Um, but uh, the globalists had other ideas. Um, they and their, uh, their minions, um, New York City Hall and elsewhere, uh, radicalized me. And uh, it was during my time in New York City that on the Tom Woods show, I found out about the Free State Project. I mentioned I'm originally from Maine, and um, it just seemed the perfect fit for me at the time because I wasn't able to find any professional work in New York City. So I decided to move back to northern New England, only instead of returning to my home state of Maine, 
I decided on New Hampshire uh, to participate in the project. And my experience uh, in the project, like yours, uh, certainly, has been quite mixed. Um, I've had some some great times. I've participated in some great endeavors. Uh, a series of demonstrations I did in Manchester, New Hampshire during COVID-1984. Actually, it seemed help pr- prevent the city council from instituting a mask mandating ordinance. I did a number of social events. I did bill review for the New Hampshire Liberty Alliance. Uh, but on the other hand, um, of course, the uh, diversity within the Free State Project and Libertarian Movement broadly uh, generated some some friction with uh, my my views and my attempts to awaken um, other free staters uh, to just how serious a threat globalism is to liberty. And as you might expect, all the usual suspects uh, bit back viciously at me, um, hold, holding up the, uh, the proverbial cross uh, against what they, they saw as uh, a vampire come to, uh, to suck their blood or something like that. Uh, so I admit I wasn't the most diplomatic in some of these exchanges either. Uh, I've been uh, kicked out of a number of chats, um, ostracized in a number of ways, but uh, that uh, did not deter me. And um, owing to the incestuous governance structure of the Free State Project itself, I, I realized that attempting to co-op and uh, redirect it toward um, nationalist purposes um, was an exercise in futility. So for a time, I, I was part of a Wignat secret society. Um, I was the token libertarian in it. Um, but I discovered that, uh, I think also like you, that the uh, the third positionists sphere of the alt-right, the Nazis and the fascists, have plenty of very bad actors of their own. Indeed. And uh, to them, they're... Their ideology is a statist religion as much as it is to any other statist or specifically progressivist, because in my opinion, third positionists are nothing more than right wing progressivists. And my refusal to forsake sound economic principles um, was tantamount to blasphemy of their particular statist sect, and they ultimately drove me away. And it was at that point that I realized um, that given the great dearth in the representation of reactionary libertarians or what we might more broadly call zeroth positionists um, in political activism, that it was up to me uh, to start my own organization and all the experiences insight that I'd gleaned, um, both intellectually and personally, from this odyssey uh, informed um, the the mission that I have set for Liberty Plus and its membership criteria, its, its character as well. And um, I suppose at this point, 
uh, be not a bad time for you to follow up yeah, on, on I'm, anything I just I'm, mentioned. I appreciate the, um, the level of detail. I actually hadn't realized um, until just now that, that you, had, you, you actually moved to New Hampshire for the Free State Project. That is interesting. And so um, you – what the economics thing was difficult for me. Uh, when I first started, uh, shall we say, flirting with the alt-right – I thought that I'd sort of bring these people into the libertarian fold. I said, hey, you know, these guys are basically revolting against political correctness. That seemed like a thing worth doing in, in the libertarian movement. And I was like, I'll just teach them about economics, and then they'll be on my side, you know. And I found that quite the opposite ended up happening. You know, I became convinced eventually that while I, while I was never able to sign on to, um, you know, socialism as is commonly understood, uh, I did come to the conclusion that state intervention in the economy is sort of like an inevitability. I, I believe that the state is an inevitable institution. And I, and I think that so long as it's an inevitable institution, it, it's, it's going to be an economic actor, which means that it is going to... Um, somebody's telling me that I need to unmute myself, which is certainly... Hang on a second. Stand by just a second. My Twitter spaces doesn't appear to be working. And I want to try to, I do want to try to, oh, well, now that should be, that should do it. Okay. So my mic was off on the Twitter spaces. I don't know why it would have me start a Twitter space and not have any audio. That seems like a silly thing to do indeed. And so let me see if I can hear myself oh, now. Well, well, that should be, that should do it. So my mic was off on the Twitter spaces. I don't know why it would have me start now, a Twitter space. Can you, uh, can you say something, my friend, that real quick? like a silly thing to do. Sure. Indeed. I'm actually so hearing the... Let me the... see if I can hear myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that'll do it in the background. Be, that's perfect. Now, now, I, I think that... I don't know why it would have me start now, a Twitter space. Can you, uh, can you say something, my friend, real quick? Sure. All right. Perfect. That means that this is working. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it. Okay. So that's perfect. I'm going to leave that, and that'll be good. Now these people can hear me. Uh, I wasn't sure if it was picking me up from like the 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 speaker microphone, but it is picking it up from my soundboard, which was the idea. And I thought I had this working, and then it wasn't working, so I had to do a sound check. So I apologize to everybody who had to tolerate that, especially my guest. And so anyway, as I was saying, I came to the conclusion. That the state is an inevitability, and maybe I should illustrate why I believe that to be the case. Um, you are going to have a situation. Uh, I came to the conclusion. I, I you, have you read um, "Democracy: The God That Failed" by Hans Hermann Hoppe? Yes. So you know what Hoppe describes is essentially. I, I think that you could fairly describe it as monarchy. That that basically, in a in a purely free market environment. Some people are going to be better at acquiring property than others, and that it's just going to make more sense to sort of like live under their landlordship, and that as a consequence of this, that they're just going to sort of keep on acquiring property until they have a territory that largely resembles a nation. And so the people who are within that territory are going to be subject to their, subject to their will, uh, and, you know, in theory— you can leave the territory, but this is the same thing that we say about nation states today. You know, if you don't you love it or leave it is the old thing that we used to mock people for saying. And so it seems to me that somebody's going to be in control. And so that means that there's something that could that could accurately be described as a state in all reasonably predictable human affairs. 
and so when you have that institution, it seems to me that it's it's going to have an impact on the economy. And the idea ought to be to try to manage that impact in a reasonable, responsible way, which is why I, I recently did an episode titled Misesian Socialism, which I, I'm sure just it was nails on a chalkboard to lots of people. But, you know, it seemed a concept worth exploring because it, I have the same experience as you that when I started traveling in these nationalist circles, they just had the ideas that they discuss in economic terms are not economics. They're, they don't they're not thinking economically. They're thinking that once they once they wave their they, they say, you know, oh, well, if we stop doing this, then, you know, then we could pay for everybody's health care and they don't conceptualize how prices are formed. And, they, and it, it's not an economic idea. And so I was like, all right, what, what actually needs to happen is you need to have responsible people you know, actually thinking in economic terms and trying to responsibly, you know, manage the state's intervention in the economy. And I will, uh, I'll take your thoughts on that. Well, as far as the state goes, I would say that if you define the state as an organization that is capable of affecting a society's behavior with the threat of violence, such an organization is, if not universal, it is certainly normal uh, from the standpoint of, of history. But I, I think there are important exceptions. Uh, societies that could functionally be called stateless or perhaps free market institutions of governance defining the polity have existed. Most, Almost the entirety of human history has been in a state of near or true anarchy. And nearly all of our daily life, even under the modern monstrosities um, that comprise states today, most of our that life is actually not in interaction with the state in any way. Now, as far as inevitability goes, I would say that economics is truly inevitable and universal. Economics, after all, is life. Everything we do is a trade-off in time. Time is, is the most scarce resource of all. And obviously, economists are not just economists. They're human beings. They have aspirations and biases. There's sentiments like the rest of us do. And so given that, you have to be clear on exactly what your ultimate objective is. What is the interest? What is a national interest? Is, say, a national interest a concept of any utility? Because what economics tells us is, of course, not... Um, whether a uh, intervention on the part of the state, um, a violent intervention in uh, the market is morally right or wrong. In, in fact, to say that something is objectively right or wrong in terms of morality might be itself a, a contradiction in terms. You have to take a, a utilitarian approach what The Economist does is account for the full 
table of costs and benefits associated with an intervention. And the pushback I've received from third positionists is when I show that the costs in terms of their own nationalist and reactionary values actually exceeds the benefits regarding what anything that could objectively be called a national interest. But what can be objectively called a national interest is for me barely distinguishable from the libertarian property norm, which is to say the national interest is the protection of the sum total of the nation's property holdings. When you start introducing subjective elements to the concept of national interest, which third positionism package deals in, to use a Randian term, you have massive problems because considerations other than protection of the property norm, should we go to the stars? Like, uh, what should our end of life issues be? How imperialistic do we want to be? Um, How scientific do we want to be? All these subjective considerations, how traditionalist should we be? Should we have a single religion? Um, What's our ultimate standard of value? Is it just the raw collective gene pool of our race or nation? Or are there qualitative considerations, quality of life considerations that we need to make as well. And where political philosophy is concerned, I'm of the opinion that as such, um, given its ultimate basis in law, law needs to be hyper objective and precisely defined, not um, defined with the subjective and highly metaphorical grammar that is more appropriate to a religious belief system. Like the state is an institution, like statism is functionally a religion. The unquestioning and meek deference to a state as a divine being or people who work within the state as beings that get to simply do things the rest of us can't. If anything, I am not fighting the state per se, as I've defined it earlier, as a libertarian. What I'm fighting is, is the belief system of statism which is, my opinion, the world's most malignant religion, especially in combination with other religions of certain progressivist and scientific, scientistic persuasions like global warmism and wokeism. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so you, you are fundamentally, although you're speaking in sort of like nationalist terms, your, your aim is the abolition of the state. You, you believe that... Um, there can be such a thing as a stateless society, and that's uh, the goal that you aim at then. Again, you used the the noun, the state there. My goal as a libertarian is peace for the society in which I live at a minimum. That's what libertarianism is. It's the aim of peace for a given society. Again, is that a, an objective moral good? That might be a contradiction in terms. It's, it comes down to your preference. 
Well, I, I'm I, not a natural rights libertarian. I'm what you would call either an emotivist or a rule utilitarian. I regard the libertarian property norm as an immensely powerful and useful heuristic, but it's not some divine moral law that is baked into the fabric of the universe. Well, I get but that. In its simplicity, that heuristic by itself actually has immense virtue. There is immense virtue in simplicity. I, I believe that that's true. I, I think that, you know, dishonest people tend to complicate things to confuse the people that they're ripping off. Um, and the the idea that I'm sort of getting at here is that, um, well, I, I'm not sure, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time debating the existence of the state with you, actually, but I would say that the goal of peace, the goal of like a peaceful, orderly society is what got me interested in libertarianism to begin with. I felt like the state was breaking the rules and that the the rules were um, I, I used to believe that the rules were like an objective moral standard. I don't, I don't think I believe that anymore, but that there was some sort of natural order that the state disrupted. And yes. and so I wanted to remove that disruption and i came to the conclusion that that that's actually not an accurate description of human affairs the 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 the, the actual I, I hate use it's difficult to talk about the you know state of nature stuff because it's a infinitely complex subject with a great deal of uncertainty involved but uh, i don't believe it's at all like natural that human beings just cooperate you know, universally over a mass territory. I, I don't think that that's real. I, I think that um, outside of a, a given, uh, you know, s certain social circle, and even within it, you know, there, coercion has to be applied, I think. Otherwise, uh, well, it's going to be applied. There's no otherwise. If, if, if the good people are not coercing the populace, then bad people are coercing the populace. And I, I don't think that there's a I don't believe that there's a conceivable scenario where um, there's no initiatory coercion. I, I think that the coercion has to be applied proactively. And, and I think that what we're seeing in a thing like Porkfest is actually evidence of that, that the idea that you don't have to intervene, that you can allow people to be left to their, you know, to their vices and their and their ridiculous designs leads to things like drag queen story hour eventually it'll get there and and that somebody has to intervene prior to that to to forcibly prevent that from happening is sort of my thought process insofar as your statement reduces to a, rede a rejection of pacifism i absolutely agree with that and i also think that the libertarian movement in its strong affiliation and i with the anti-war movement of the progressivist 60s and the, its oft characterization of itself as, quote, anti-war is grossly misleading and dangerous. It leads in a pacifist direction. As you can see, like from my website's content, Liberty Plus is very much what the so-called bleeding heart libertarians would call a brutalist libertarian organization. I don't think that, you know, the, the thing that, um, I, maybe that's what the bleeding heart libertarians would call it, but 
you know, I kind of like I, I jumped on board the, the you know, I was uh, at the vanguard of libertarian and brutalism, you may know. And like the idea then was like, OK, this is just, you know, raw non-aggression. And even like we had this like libertarian brutalism group on Facebook and people were, like posting porn in there and stuff like that. And, and so like I don't I, I, I understand that the bleeding heart libertarians might use this as a as a derisive term but i don't think that that's what we're discussing right i mean uh, it seems to me that you're, you're advocating a set of values which which is which extends beyond mere non-coercion is isn't that accurate to describe absolutely it's what people within the libertarian movement would call a type of thick libertarianism that is partially what the plus sign in Liberty Plutz connotes. And it is, of course, reminiscent of the very cringe atheism plus movement uh, from many years back. I was actually a fellow traveler in the whole skeptical, debunking atheist scene for a time. And while it was cringe because to the progenitors of atheism plus, um, that which you should be in addition to being an atheist, was like an SJW. Um, notwithstanding that, the the concept of augmenting a movement that is defined um, to a significant extent negatively, in the case of atheism, opposition to the notion of deities or libertarianism to statism, that to advance your movement, to present it well, that your, your followers and leaders should also advocate um, values that are pro-social, that are agreeable to the kind of people out there you might want to recruit or influence. And that uh, concept, I think, is, is eminently applicable to the libertarian movement, which has very serious like character and optics issues. But then again, so does uh, the whole Nazi space as well. Um, I, so there needs to be a distinct organization that is, I think, singular in its ultimate mission which is the advancement of liberty. Note that Liberty Plus is not technically a libertarian organization as its criteria for admission as a member defines it. We actually exclude many libertarians, even the most hardcore anarcho-capitalists, on grounds of character. And we actually welcome many um, on the right, who are not doctrinaire libertarians, uh, uh, people such as uh, neo-reactionaries and paleoconservatives, because they have a strong liberty orientation. I mean, look, I mean, if I could uh, make a Pat Buchanan-type dictator for life of the United States, like, yeah, I'd, I'd take the protectionism as long as I could get everything else that comes with it. Absolutely. Uh, so all right. That, and that's the mentality behind it. All right. I, I think I get the, the basic idea of what you're uh, what you're laying out here. Um, 
the situation at the Porcupine Freedom Festival, I think that a lot of people have sort of abandoned this thing. They have said, you know, all right, uh, long before they started talking about kid-friendly drag shows, it really just descended to a point where um, it, it didn't seem a uh, it didn't seem like it was a project that matched the values of, of people uh, right of Bernie Sanders, let's say. And so uh, I was sort of surprised that you have this uh, you have this talk that you're going to do there titled um, "Good Night Alt Right, Hello Liberty Plus." That you're going to be doing at the uh, the upcoming Porcupine Freedom Festival, and uh, we, tell me first, why do you think that it's still worth engaging with uh, with this crowd? I know it's worth it because of my personal experience with many free staters, and the majority of free staters are normal, healthy people like me who just want to live a good life and raise uh, happy families. And I know that um, many of those people are fed up with all the, I I wanted to use a stronger term, the gayness uh, (laughs) in the movement. They're fed up. They've got a hunger for something better. They, They don't want to have to bring their families to events where well, they'll be in within a one mile radius of some of these utter degenerates and, and perverts. Um, they don't want that. They want something better. And I think that when they discover Liberty Plus, um, it will be like an oasis to them. Okay, and so when they uh, when they come to Liberty Plus, I found something that I found a little bit startling on your site. Um, you seem to be discussing an accelerationist strategy, and I'll ask you to just define that term in your in your own sense, so that I'm not defining it for you. So optimal accelerationism means operating from the premise that. America in its current geopolitical configuration is not salvageable. The federal government in particular is irredeemably evil. It, it's out to enslave and murder heritage America. And it, it cannot be reformed. There is no political solution, as they say, at the national level. That's a very important distinction. Um, especially because all politics is ultimately local. Now, as I say on the site, an immigration moratorium is a pipe dream. And even if it were enacted, the birth rate differentials between Heritage America and undesirable aliens are such that they would still doom the former, even in that scenario, with a wall or no wall. And parenthetically, just as a libertarian, I would favor um, political decentralization of America, um, even if it were 100 percent white, um, just for the purposes of of tax competition and and subsidiarity alone. So 
the way you respond to this is to accelerate the collapse at the national level, intensifying the polarization between the various factions vying for control of this decaying carcass of a country um, to make continued um, existence as a single polity impossible. Uh, it, this goes even to the point of infiltrating enemy organizations, trying to radicalize them further. You also need to take local dominion. You need to get our guys into positions of power at the local level, in particular positions uh, such as sheriff and Republican Party precinct captain, positions that will make future victories easier, that when things come to a head and there is an, Im an imminent possibility of like kinetic conflict, they're going to be able to marshal uh, those capable of uh, discharging that force professionally um, to our side rather than the enemies. Uh, because even the largest empire cannot maintain its grip without boots on the ground, without the proverbial policeman on the street corner. And at the same time, you also want to strengthen your forces in every which way for every possible significant contingency. So this places a great premium on prepping as well. Uh, prepping with, 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 with food, dependence, firearms proficiency, gunfighting skills, physical conditioning, financial autonomy. That's so absolutely imperative and others. And with that foundation, you are in a position to strike at the institutions in this country that are irredeemably corrupt and incrementally suffocating it to death. Um, institutions such as the welfare state that the foreign um, invaders feast upon, as well as the uh, public school system. Uh, so a child's mind is sacred. And there, so when it comes to the poisoning of our children's minds with this noxious cult Marx propaganda, we're not a reformers, but abolitionists. But that said, I don't want like nationalism and traditionalist values crammed down my children's throat by force, like in Nazi Germany either. Like I am not a, a public school reformer. I'm an absolute abolitionist. For that reason, it is incumbent upon us to make public schools utterly um, unbearable for normal, healthy, heritage American parents. Um, we want all the, um, the curricula at the high school level to be some form of cult mark sex ed effectively or effectively been this stopping short of course of act increasing child exposure to pedophiles we are actually like benevolent arsonists smoking sane parents out of the school system into the arms of homeschoolers and homeschooling pod communities where well there'll be much greater exposure to 
reactionary, traditionalist, and nationalist values. So, and we, we provide them the out to this accelerationist destruction of the public education monstrosity in the form of school choice. And I don't mean the, the cucked kind of choice that, say, Milton Friedman would advocate in the form of vouchers that only give the, the regime increased control over private schools. I mean actual like educational savings accounts where parents can d directly divert their property tax payments to the funding of their own children's assist education in the humane and voluntary sector. And the, the great irony of this is, is, of course, this is a very left libertarian approach, isn't it? We actually want to make the, so long as it exists, the, the public institution of the school an even more anti-white, anti-family, anti-life environment, but we, we always do want the opt-out as well, but for the opposite reasons as our counterparts on the left. So, uh, as you say, I mean, what you're describing is basically moving the current, um, the current order in the direction that the enemy wants it, it, it to go. Um, and this has been a, an, a confusion I've had with accelerationists of a decidedly different stripe than you, that what is it that you think, why do you believe that moving things in this direction is likely to reach the outcome, more likely to reach the outcome that you aim for than the outcome that they aim for? What, what do you think is, um, what, what's the difference there? I mean, they're trying to basically do exactly what you you are trying to do. They want to, you know, propagandize the kids and basically make living impossible um, with the aim of destroying what is. And, they, and they're interested in, uh, they believe that what comes next will somehow be better. But, you know, I, I think in their case, and I think you've, you've sort of nailed this, I, I don't have the quote off the top of my head, but, you know, they're, it seems to me that the left is, congenitally incapable of happiness and, and so that they are invested in the destruction of what is whatever is must not be and so whatever the current order is they're trying to destroy it and I, and I don't believe they have a great deal of vision as to what comes after that except to destroy that too um, it seems to me that you have an idea in your head that destroy the current order and then from this will emerge something more stable is that an accurate assessment of what it is that you're aiming for and and tell me what do you think stops the destruction what stops the destruction is the survival instinct but the survival instinct is far from universal it's the will to entropy and death that defines the left political viewpoint is heritable they're the ones who will keep their children in schools um, and possibly even sterilize them through these uh, this transgenderism mania. And so much the better for it. It's quite tragic, obviously, but such is the starry state of affairs that we live in. And we have no obligation uh, to save them from themselves. They cannot be saved. They're simply defective people, and there's a proliferation of defectives that the abundance of modern society has created. They are just going to have to burn themselves out and off of our backs. 
and we actually want to introduce catalyzing agents to this process. Not that leftists really reproduce very much anyway. Uh, that's another great white pill is that the birth rate among heritage Americans on the right is actually above replacement, whereas white leftists um, are well below. That bodes very well from us, but that's not to say that this process of going through this, this evolutionary bottleneck will not be extremely painful. It will. That's inevitable. I have a, and I can't uh, guarantee oh, anything, go ahead. obviously. Tragically, it might very well be the case that um, something resembling National Socialist Germany or Fascist Italy arises from the ashes. And all those such a regime would be significantly better in some ways to the neoliberal one we have now. In other ways, it would be very much worse. Even as heinous as uh, our globalist occupied government is, at least under it, I can still homeschool my kids. I could not do that under Nazi Germany. And actually, in part, thanks to Nazi Germany, you still can't do that in Germany today. That prohibition was something that denazification did not rescind. I have a uh, I have a question from a, a chatter who has said, um, has the guest ever read Infinite Jest? Uh, good white male New Englander, tennis enthusiast reading, uh, Cheers from New England, the Wignat Ethnostate. So have you ever read Infinite Jest? Infinite Jest, I have not. Was he describing me uh, as a bourgeois tennis playing New Englander or I believe is that something that's I, that's found like I believe he's describing him I, I, I think that he's a good white male New Englander tennis enthusiast reading I, I have no idea uh, I, I'm unable to discern his tone okay. he says cheers from New England the the Wignat ethnostate perhaps he's describing himself as a uh, uh, as a uh, tennis enthusiast and wondering if you've read this book that he is also reading, it seems to me, but I'm, I'm not Sorry. able to discern. I, I haven't even heard of it. Okay. Um, so, all right. So let's move on to, uh, so what is the, uh, tell me about this plan that you have for this, uh, this talk that you're going to give. And I understand that uh, you probably don't want to give the whole game away, but what have you, what have you described this talk as to the, to the people that you've duped into letting you do it? <laughs> oh, uh, I don't have the description com committed to memory. Um, you can go find it on the Porkfest site, but uh, it, it says uh, something to the effect of Fascists hate liberty as much as globalists do. How then did the libertarian to alt-right pipeline become a thing? Join N of one and learn of his journey along this pipeline, how he came to repudiate the authoritarians of the right and how and why he started his own organization dedicated to defeating fascism and globalism both. That's that's almost verbatim, actually. And so uh, you're going to go in there and say that you have an alternative to the alt-right that is uh, more appropriate for libertarians to 
to uh, move along to if they're fed up with sort of the the left wing nonsense that pervades throughout that movement? Would that be a, a fair um, summary of what you've just said? Yes, I think so. And it, 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 you're you're spot on in describing it as people are just fed up with all the, the scuzziness from the left. Note, you don't actually have to be especially traditionalist or right reactionary yourself to be a part of Liberty Plus. You just have to have the common sense not to counter signal um, like such values with these juvenile like epithets of racist, bigot, collectivist. Um, we don't have time for that anymore. Basically, don't act like an SJW. Um, and um, in that regard, it's actually um, a fairly big tent organization. Um, the, the Free State Project also likes to market itself as a very big tent organization, but not universally so, as uh, one can readily discern from the disclaimer on their website, where they uh, they say bigots, uh, racists, uh, inciters of hatred are not welcome. They they really just mean like whites expressing their in in group preference more than anything, because I, I've actually seen how they like respond to um, like Zionist Jews and black nationalists within the movement. And those folks get almost a completely free pass. Of course, there's it, yeah, there's a there's one event there. Um, there's there's a there's an event. I think it actually goes on a couple of times during the week that it's specifically Afrocentric. Um, and of course, uh, I don't think that if there was a group that wanted to come along and, and have a uh, a Zionist discussion, something tells me that they they'd meet minimal resistance. But of course, uh, um, somebody commented. <laughs> Somebody commented on uh, Dennis Pratt's uh, Twitter thread. He said, uh, "Okay, so uh, you have this uh, this very tolerant uh, view toward uh, drag queen story hour. I guess that means that you don't mind uh, if they have Nazi story hour." And uh, conspicuously, Mr. Pratt did not see fit to respond to this, and so <laughs> I, I commented on it and I and I let him know that I was available. But I, something tells me I won't be getting an invitation. Um, but there is this phenomenon that was described I, I think the term the insidious libertarian to alt-right pipeline was uh, I think was coined while I was in jail and I, I think that, um, that while the phenomenon was not unique to me by any stretch of the imagination um, I read about it somebody printed out and and sent to me an article in the Daily Beast that I, I believe coined this term and uh, used uh, some of my writing uh, by which to justify this this term. And I think it's a real thing because I think that a lot of libertarians saw not only that the, the movement had sort of come apart at the seams and that it was just, you know, degenerate nonsense, but that that was the inevitable outcome of like the, 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 the coercion of the state not being applied uh, in advance of these, you know, sort of outcomes, you know, um, and that realization, I think, <clears throat> is what led people along to the alt-right. Now, you know, I think that the alt-right had its own pathologies, and whatever has—I I refer to this now as what was once called the alt-right, because I don't believe the alt-right exists in any um, meaningful way now. I, I think that what is going on now is sort of 
I've had trouble sort of articulating my conception of it, and so I just I call it what was once known as the alt right, a white nationalist movement that is um, factionalized to the point of impotence and uh, uh, much to the pleasure of the the people who don't want it to succeed it'd probably be the closest approximation to what i'm thinking about uh and so there's definitely a drive within the libertarian movement to sort of like get to a more realistic um path to a more desirable society than we have without giving into all this left-wing nonsense and they are looking for an alternative, but they are like terrified of being called Nazis as, a, as the easiest example. And so it seems to me that there's a there's there's room for some kind of um, there's room for some alternative to these two ideas. Now, what is you have described uh, your conception of things, this zeroth position, third position I had a little bit of trouble conceiving of. Could you pr- maybe try to? I, I'm thinking of third position and zeroth position, but that's not all there is in your conception of politics. Could you try to elaborate on that idea for me? Sure. Uh, zeroth position is a, a catch all term that includes uh, some differing political philosophies of. S- but subtly differing, all with the basic uh, common denominator, in that they are reactionary worldviews that favor competitive rather than consolidated and monopolistic governmental structures. These worldviews would be right-wing libertarianism, propertarianism, and neo-reaction, to uh, name the big ones. And this position is contrasted with third positionism, which is the segment of the reactionary right that favors, um, that is consolidated and monopolistic government, the unlimited ability of the state to violently intervene in the peaceful affairs of the nation um, in the name at least of the of a national interest as defined by the people in the state so that's zeroth and third position there's a is there a first and a second yes uh, those would be um, classical liberalism slash conservatism and left liberalism, like socialism and communism, respectively. And your view is that Liberty Plus is is zero with position. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes. Okay. And are you viewing this as the like natural state of affairs? Is that kind of is that the conception of zero with position that this is what was before all this other stuff? Is that is that the way you conceive of it? Yes. The modern state um, with this this hegemonic monopoly over like m- macro linguistic groups of people is an extreme historical aberration even under some of history's largest pre-modern empires the overall governance structure was much more decentralized 
I'd say people actually had a, a much greater degree of freedom in how to conduct their businesses. Um, the tax burden as a percentage of GDP was much lower than it is now. Um, local um, chieftains, uh, shamans, warlords, um, uh, barons, aristocrats uh, had a much greater uh, position in the political hierarchy than uh, the more Hobbesian model therein that we have now. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned uh, democracy, the god that failed in earlier, um, effectively uh, just uh, reiterating Hoppe's thesis um, from that book here. But it is, yes, political decentralization and also a polycentric legal order where you have different sets of legal systems for the constituent fat, uh, centers of, of society, um, the, the church, the aristocracy, the laity, the merchant class, the laborers, the royalty. Um, equality isn't a thing. So why, therefore, should our our legal system um, be like egalitarian in its utter lack of differentiation between that which is organically applicable to the various uh, segments that counterbalance and anchor a, a genuinely civilized society. Well, I, I think that part of the premise of Hoppe's book is essentially that like the, the centralization is like a natural occurrence, right? So if you have, now I'm not sure that um, he, he takes it this far, but it seems to me that uh, you're going to have a situation where uh, the 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 covenant community essentially, okay, is of a particular size or whatever. But at some point, just like we see happening, you see this happening with banks. And granted, the you know banking institutions are, are functionally state institutions today. But you know there's there's a tendency for one to gobble up the next, right? And so this eventually. Uh, becomes quite centralized is my conception of it, and that was sort of like what led me away from, uh, led me away from that lane of thinking, which is that, you know, this is going to become centralized, and so why don't we just begin with the centralization and and try to intelligently manage it? You know, it, it, let's just say that uh, uh, the United States tomorrow. We're going to, uh, you know, we just have all 50 states become their own separate territories. And, you know, the people within them decide how they're going to govern. Well, the first problem that you're going to have, I would say, is that China has not chosen to decentralize. And so this is one big massive force that can basically coerce any individual state within that territory. And so I wonder how you um, how you conceive of the challenges that arise in foreign policy under this decentralized model that you describe. Well, in that regard, to a degree, Hoppe and I both disagree with you because actually a significant part 
of democracy, the God that failed, was Hoppe emphasizing the fact that he is not a monarchist in that he believes that a king has the right to commit violations of the property norm against his subjects. And also a significant portion of the book is devoted to um, his concept of defense insurance agencies, which would be a free market national defense mechanism. And this, the scale of a feudal landlord's dominion over his, uh, his estate and his peasants is not comparable to the scale of dominion that the federal government enjoys over America today or any of the modern states that rule over the countries of, of Western Europe, anything like the Soviet Union. Those are not comparable at all. And you don't in any way need like mass monopoly to have standardization on a very large scale. Um, we see there are numerous free market instances of standardization. No government committee ever dictated the size of or dimensions of a USB port or it, the um, underwriter's laboratory certification that you see on appliances for safety is also a, a private organization. And the same is true for military standards and disciplines. You can have at once um, organizations that have an immense amount of fluidity between the full-time and the part-time participants between the militias and the professional organizations, ones that are highly agile and responsive to local conditions that fight and engage in the broader common defense on their own terms with their own local know-how, while at the same time benefiting from the tremendous economies of scale um, that a military does naturally enjoy. But this is also where the concept of insurance as a complementary um, industry, one that would have an economy of scope with the military comes in. In fact, insurance is already the world's largest private industry. And obviously, um, the actuarial discipline has a great natural affinity for making the kinds of calculations necessary in military preparedness. And there's no reason that you could not have the best of both local uh, decentralized defense um, in all the ways that defense benefits from localization, but also the benefits of scale and standardization. And this can even be at a scale that is transnational it could even be on the, uh, the scale of our our whole Western civilization um, we already have insurance companies today that are, are transnational it's a multi-trillion dollar industry I don't, I don't mean to cut you short here but it just seems to me that an institution that's capable of fighting a war against the Chinese army um, is necessarily going to have the power to govern a, a country. China has right? no interest in colonizing the U.S. They're not an imperialist country. 
they've been described as an empire, but that's been in H, an empire of disparate like Chinese ethnicities and dialects, but not a, a, tr a global empire. They never have been. They've never given any indication of having the slightest designs there. Well, so I, I, I don't I, buy for I, I a agree with you like that this notion I, that China is just going to take over if the U.S. balkanizes it. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Uh, I, don't believe that I don't believe it's the goal of the Han Chinese to govern the continent of North America and micromanage every aspect of the human condition. What, what I mean is that China does have interests around the world and they do pursue them. Right. I mean, they they pay a lot of money to in order to influence the governments um, that they seek to influence for purposes of, if nothing else, trade. And so they want favorable trade policy, and, and they, uh, they go about the world using money and espionage in order to accomplish this goal. And, yes. it, and it seems to me that they would not cease to do this um, if, uh, if they uh, were dealing with 50 individual uh, governments of various forms on the continent of North America. And so they would they would absolutely in my why don't but they, don't they deal with countries like Switzerland? They deal extensively with Israel. Israel uh, sells the, the technology they steal from us to the Chinese. Israel's a tiny country. Right. And so they um, they do business as they uh, with Israel. Sure. And I don't believe that uh, uh, Israel is free of Chinese influence, but I think that shall we say the Israelis are better at peddling influence than uh, than a lot of people. And so uh, it seems to me that the Chinese will have an, an interest in exerting their will in other places and that they will do so in ways uh, that are not necessarily always in the best interest of the people that they're influencing. Do, is that, do you find that to be a controversial point? But a conflict of interest is true on both an an individual level between all human beings, like between communities, between cities, between regions, between countries, between nations. Like we're all different. We all have subjective and conflicting desires and they often lethally conflict. That's the human condition. Well, and, and precisely- Libertarianism so is simply the desire to resolve those differences peacefully to whatever extent we can, that there will always be violent conflict, there will always be criminality is absolutely no reason that we should become criminals or predators ourselves or that we should any way um, give moral sanction to, submit to, or accept any organization that commits aggressive violence against the people we care about. That's what I mean by destroying and demystifying the religion of statism. Well, but don't you think that in order to fend off that sort of aggression, what, what you actually require is a massive... Uh, institution capable of exerting the sort of violence that a massive centralized institution can. And, and this is a large, yes, a very large institution or a very large industry, I would say, precisely, is necessary to counter another large institution. Yes, um, military is a highly scalable industry, but I don't accept that it requires intranational internal predation and like the government to um, commit crimes against the nation. No, I don't. So absolutely not. I, I understand. I'm trying to conceive of how you build a force 
that is comparable to a national military that does extract resources from the population in the form of taxation um, in the in the absence of that coercive element. I, I'm, I'm missing that part. You just set up a corporation, put all the military assets that the federal government currently possesses into that corporate bucket, then auction off shares, perhaps uh, sale is restricted to heritage Americans only with a resale restriction, and then obviously abolish uh, the ta taxation for the purpose of funding the military, and you accept whatever results. Well, uh, I would say that accepting whatever results is, uh, uh, it seems fraught with peril to me. Uh, the idea here is that there there are unacceptable results, like losing wars. And Having a predatory mega monopoly of the largest size in history isn't a significant peril? I would say that the uh, I'm not necessarily concerned with the predation so far as it is the extraction of surplus energy from the population in order to uh, to accomplish the goal of the survival of the of the that race of people within is, the boundary, right? The the idea saving the, an investment is the contribution of surplus energy. Why does it have to be predatorily extracted? The reason that I believe that it has to be predatorily extracted is because a a military um, uh, properly active is not a profitable venture, right? The entire purpose of a military is to uh, is to expend resources. In, in a way that is entirely destructive. But and, and look at the way people stand up and cheer for troops on airplanes. Look at the way people worship the military. Like collective survival as a race and nation is perhaps one of the most powerful human impulses there is. It's arguably the reason religious religion even exists in the first place. And you're telling me that people could, would not fund a institution voluntarily to the degree that such a nation, such a polity with that type of institution would survive, that to me beggars belief. Uh, I, it seems to me that, yes, lots of people uh, venerate the military. That's partially a, a, a product of propaganda, of course, right? I mean, the, 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 the state tells everybody that the, the military is very good and then it says, give me your money in order to pay for the military. Propaganda right? co-ops are innate deference to authority and our overriding collectivist survival instinct. It appeals to deeply ingrained and powerful instincts that lie within us, that are genetically programmed into us by billions of years for evolution. It is not an ex nihilo artificial creation just of fanciful propaganda masters. I don't, I don't believe it is simply this, uh, you know, uh, fanciful conjuring of an idea it is it, it is the these things are not separate okay so you have this natural um uh, this natural state of affairs where you have uh the division of labor includes warriors right and so the warriors are, are venerated by the people of the society or the society does not survive it's it's an either or thing in my conception and so uh it, in order to maintain that the institution that maintains the warriors um, uh, uh, feeds that impulse, right? It, it's it, it, and when it ceases to do that, we have problems like we do today, which is the military failing to meet its recruiting goals, and so you know the the the, uh, the government goes and turns the military into a, a, a an institution uh, geared primarily towards social experiments and begins 
you know, using it to advance the transgender cause is the most notable yep. example. And, and then people don't want to out. and people don't want to show up uh, for that anymore. And then they begin uh, then they begin not wanting to join. And then, of course, um, at some point in the course of this, they're not going to want to finance it. And so these things have to be uh, it seems to me that it, it's not that the uh, that the people fund the military only as a, as a product of the propaganda, but they, they fund the military naturally. It's the, everybody kind of understands that like, okay, I'm part of a group and there are costs associated with this and the costs are outweigh the, uh, the benefits outweigh the costs because I'm better off in a society than not in a society. But um, there is, of course, the uh, classical question of the free rider problem. That so, if you enjoy the benefits of military protection and you and these uh, costs are not extracted from you by force, there is a very strong incentive to let other people pay for the protection and for you to continue to enjoy it anyway. And uh, I'll let you respond to that. There are numerous real-world instances where the free rider problem has been amply resolved on the free market. The lighthouse, like cited very commonly as a public good, needing forcible extraction for funding due to the alleged problem of free ridership in actuality, is usually funded through docking fees from a nearby port. Like, and more generally. In everyday life, we benefit in countless ways from things that we um, tend we, we pay no money for. Um, so people don't um, pay me money for like lessons in etiquette or my politeness that I've imbibed from working call center jobs. That's something that they enjoy for free. When you go to um, a a mall, you don't pay specifically for like the fountain, um, although you can donate by throwing pennies in it. Uh, when you you stay at a hotel, you don't pay specifically for like the elevator. Um, most the overwhelming majority of life is non-transactional. I find it greatly ironic that um, like critics of of libertarianism often like to say. Like, oh, we're not these isolated islands. We exist in a society. We are connected to one another. But in the case of public goods, it's the libertarian who is already quite cognizant of the fact that everything we do has some effect on uh, other people nearly. And But most of it is not something that can be uh, commodified, um, let alone monetized. And yet... All of life is transactional in the sense that we make trade-offs in time, but the overwhelming majority is not um, not catalactic, not commodified, and not monetized. Um, so I would say that the free rider problem is is no problem at all, and for the aforementioned reasons, not to mention also just purely materialistic considerations like the desire not to have your property bombed in like to smithereens by invading foreign power isn't sufficient um, impetus for a free market mechanism to provide the good of national defense. Well, I think that the mechanics of national defense are such that you take, um, if you just, if we can talk about the United States within its existing borders, um, you know, you basically have a, uh, an outer perimeter 
that is subject to foreign invasion, and that the people within that uh, within that perimeter um, will benefit from whoever is paying for the protection of that perimeter. There's no. It doesn't seem to be that there's there's any two ways about that. Would you agree with that much? Under conditions of statism, a huge amount number of people get to free ride anyway. I, I agree that uh, people do free cro- ride. The state's cronies can carve out all kinds of exceptions for themselves. I'm just trying to understand. And the ordinary people who aren't politically connected are the ones who suffer most. Um, actually, I, I don't. I don't disagree with your critique of things that are going on. I'm just, you know, the 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 fact of the matter is, is that somebody has to expend resources in order to protect the perimeter and then the, then the people within the perimeter benefit whether whether they're paying or not we we would agree on that much correct my children don't pay for the security systems i install or my stockpile of guns that i use to protect them i would say that um your your children are going to <laughs> well this is you're talking about a a family unit where you are providing for your children first of all which i i think is um there are parallels to draw with the the nation and state but it is not uh, it's not precisely the same thing and of course uh the idea actually is uh you know the the way things are presently organized is that uh your children in fact will be paying you back for all of this in the in the uh, social security thing and by uh, doing all of the things that they do to make society possible. Um, but, you know, prior to all of that, of course, uh, you know, children, uh, the idea of having children was so that they could take care of you when you got older, partially. Um, it is not that it is not that your children are free riders. Uh, I, I certainly don't think that's a that's a I don't think that that's a, a, a comparable issue to what I'm describing. It, the issue is that there's a threat external to the nation and that a great deal of resources must be expended in order to defend against that threat. Absent that protection, then everybody within the perimeter becomes vulnerable to death and destruction. And so one one who is interested in the survival of the race and the nation sort of like has to have an interest in that protection. Isn't that proportional in effect to the scale of the state's monopolization it's the modern state, and yes, this is partly technological as well, but it's under conditions of modern statism, this consolidation that we've seen, um, the phenomenon of total war, um, where attacks on civilians, where the entire nation state, rather than, say, just the ruling family, is at war. And the results have been catastrophic. Uh, just, by the way, I... I it, Looking um, at the big picture here and also um, in the context of our broader discussion, wouldn't it be nice if like the only um, uh, dis- disagreements in, in the libertarian movement were over like uh, matters considering uh, like the private provision of national defense and not like whether we should be exposing our children to pedophiles. <laughs> well, don't don't I wish that that was the case, of course. And so, I mean, you know, I, I don't think that you and I are going to uh, find a lot of dispute on the subject of, uh, you know, exposing the children to pedophiles. Of course, I, I understand I sort of started the thing off with that. Um, but it, it's interesting to me that you seem to be advocating a, 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 a political strategy which 
purports to have a, a nationalist um, bent to it, and the strategy is to bring down the existing order and to uh, it's, it seems to me that we're not considering what happens in order to prevent a foreign Absolutely. country from destroying. I would take a, total anarchy. Total anarchy is defined by like any national scale full-time professional defense organizations or any written laws to the situation we have now in a heartbeat. And, and you would accept that in and, and uh, you, your preferences for this so strongly that the concept of losing a war to Not a only foreign that, military is an acceptable prefer, outcome. Like, I would also prefer total anarchy to National Socialist Germany or the equivalent thereof today. Absolutely. And I don't you, ever want a regime like that coming back. And, and you prefer it so strongly that you're, you're willing to see the nation lose a war. Yes, I would fight for Russia if they invaded us. Well, you know, I might fight for Russia too, but that's a that's a specific thing. Um, it, it, I I would not fight for China, say, okay. And so it seems to me that uh, what you're describing has the uh, has the potential to do great harm to the to the people that you purport to be trying to protect. Well, in my view, statism has much greater capacity for harm. Well, statism is the result of losing a war, by the way, right? It's not, it's not that the, it's not a foreign government comes in here and kills everybody, and then, and then we live in Ankapistan, right? I mean, there's a government that follows this, don't you think? Well, even well, people who describe themselves as anarcho-capitalists, if they're at all intellectually honest, would not dispute that in a free society we would have institutions of like law enforcement and defense as well as dispute resolution quest like what differentiates libertarians from non-libertarians doctrinaire libertarians from everyone else is whether those um, institutions are something that we should tolerate when they act criminally and libertarians on that matter take the negative. Well, the idea here is that the, if the institutions don't have to be tolerated, if they can't impose their will upon the society, then they won't be tolerated. And then what will happen is institutions that can impose their will upon the society will take hold, right? And so the- Well, that's the, why we free staters want to take over New Hampshire and leave everyone alone. We mean that quite literally. Well, that's, that's a you fine idea, your will, But is it, it's a will to what? Is it a will to peace and order, or is it a will to predation, violence and exploitation, well, will the, to criminality? The, That's the question that third positionists never, ever answer directly because they can't. Because I, what I will answer it directly, sure. Their position is the, apology for government criminality. Yes. For, yes, that is exactly for, what it is. It is trying to make a case for the state, okay? And the, and the case for the state is demonstrated within the libertarian movement. Not that, for the that, state, for un, an unlimited state. Well, a state yes, because the state but, is unlimited. has to do nothing but say the words national interest before committing any manner of atrocity against the nation in the name of the nation's own good. That's exactly what fascism and Nazism is. Yes. They can do anything. Yes, that's exactly what and it is. And yes. I submit simply that we should not accept the state doing every, anything, regardless of the inevitability of 
the state as an institution. Our mentality should always, you owe such an organization, an organization at least, that commits violent aggression against the people you care about, you owe them nothing. You have a moral obligation to yourself and those people you care about to resist it in every which way possible, to undermine it, to subvert it, to avoid exposure to it, and to persuade other people to stop unquestioningly submitting and obeying it, to disabuse them of this diseased religion, this like egregious abuse of the healthy deference to authority humans have that we call statism. That is yeah, a major agenda of Liberty Plus. But at, uh, I am making the case for the unlimited state because that is what it is, okay? And so the state asserts the power to kill the people within it, and there is no substitute for good government. And the beginning of that government being good at its job would be to understand power uh, if, with the state if, if, in America. If you wouldn't mind allowing me to uh, let me let me articulate my thought, and then I'll I'll take your response, Sorry. which Sorry is that now. the the state asserts the authority to kill the people inside of its territory and outside of its territory. It is it is asserting the power of life and death, and so it is an unlimited institution because it it, it asserts the power to destroy, and so. If you are going to, I understand that you're articulating a, a position that does not have this institution, but if the institution is inevitable, as I believe that it is, then it is an unlimited institution. And for it to exercise its powers wisely, it would, it would necessarily have to understand that it was, that those powers were not, that, that that was the limit of its power, that the, the limit of its power is absolute complete destruction. And you're basically equating <clears throat> like the state with like a tautological definition of sovereignty, which is the having sufficient power to make your opponents pay a price that is too great to defy your will. But there is actually an immense range of um, power that a government can have. There are very strong and very weak governments. And strong and weak governments actually does not necessarily map on very well at all to effective, uh, to large or small, that is, governments. I think, yeah, many libertarians make this mistake as well, but so do many third positionists. I, I, I think that governments which are... Um, which advocate people who run for office advocating an energetic government tend to uh, acquire more support from the population, uh, much to the consternation of libertarians, right? Because this is what the people desire. They they want the government. Well, that's to, an indictment of democracy, not of libertarianism. Well, I, I would say that it is it is an indictment of libertarianism because it does not take into account what it is that the people desire, and at the end of the day they're going to get it and so like you know the the idea of a uh, the idea of like articulated by libertarians about a, a society will have to prevent them from forming the government yes that, libertarianism that, is, is a minority position but like popularity means nothing to me i'm an ultra reactionary elitist as well as an hardcore randian individualist 
Well, uh, so, in, and like, in order to accomplish those, order, yeah, but in order to I'm going do to get this, that, whether like most of humanity wants it or not. Well, the idea then it would be that you would have to impose a prevention of the establishment of the institution upon the populace, right? Which would require you to be able to coerce them not to form a government. All it means is consistently cracking down on violently aggressive crime and fraud consistently and making no exception when people in government do it. Well, right. But somebody's going to have to do the cracking down at the end of the day. So yes. what, what we're talking about, and is, I believe that we're talking be, about a violent imposition. And I don't believe know? in any formalized. I don't like to formalize distinctions between who does and who does not do the cracking down. This is where I part ways from a great intellectual influence of mine in Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Mencius Moldbug. He's an advocate of formalism, this very objective bright line distinction between the, I guess, the sovereign, you could say, and those who are not sovereign, um, someone who is above the law and someone below the law. I don't. I advocate a high degree of fluidity between um, the full-time and professional enforcers of law of the keepers of the peace and the part-time and amateurs. I believe in a very strong militia culture. I believe in citizens' arrests and posses. I believe in a society modeled very strongly on the one of arguably the most heroic of our ancestors, the Indo-Aryans, whose society was a warrior aristocracy, effectively a free market in government, where leaders commanded not by coercion, but primarily by consent where warriors could freely gravitate toward leaders um, who had demonstrated their prowess in battle, not leaders who were the beneficiaries of either hereditary or bureaucratic privilege. Well, it's fine to conceive of these things organically, but the people who can coercively centralize are the people who are more powerful than the people who are like, yeah, I'm cool. You should follow me. Right. I mean, that's power. That's how power works. Different types of power. There's hard and soft power. But I certainly agree with you that the normies, as we call them, the, the great the masses will just go along with what the most powerful and influential people in society um, promote. And uh, Liberty Plus seeks to um gather together the most powerful, influential people in society who have both a strong reactionary, but also a strong pro-liberty inclination. Well, I, we are, uh, we're, we're nearing the end of the show. We've got about 10 minutes left here. And uh, I appreciate um, your willingness to debate the subject matter with me. Is there, is there anything else that you want to, uh, that you want to touch on before we, uh, before we wrap up the show today? Well, of course, um, I encourage uh, folks to check out the site, uh, libertypl.us, and also uh, join our Telegram group. Uh, the way I recruit members to Liberty Plus is uh, through our Telegram chat. It's um, a public forum, and uh, di viewpoint diversity is encouraged. Uh, one of the, the markers of good character that I look for is how uh, people comport themselves uh, when some of their most uh, cherished personal beliefs are challenged. Uh, do they behave with uh, maturity and decency or do they act like SJWs? That, that's a big deciding factor. So uh, I encourage uh, definitely people to join.
to get involved and also of course to uh, check to check out my uh, upcoming talk at Porkfest if you happen to be in um, the New England area uh, come the weekend of June 24th and 25th I'll be uh, explaining the Liberty Plus concept to um, all Porkfest attendees who are interested. And uh, what, uh, what, if anything, are you going to do if you find out that um, within your vicinity there's a drag queen story hour at the event? Well, it uh, certainly provides a ready example um, for the uh, shortcomings within the Free State Project and the broader libertarian movement that I object to and that Liberty Plus uh, seeks to remedy. So uh, they've done me, um, I suppose, a, a service in in providing this kind of optical contrast, don't you think? And actually, Chris, you, earlier in the show, you said you wanted to know what my approach to the talk is going to be, some of the, the points to cover. Yeah. My, my approach is aim, aims to be very friendly and, and conciliatory. Um, I plan to praise extensively the um, very significant achievements um, that the project has made, the political difference they've uh, made in New Hampshire, the great um, communities they've also fostered, like the, the crypto exchange and homeschooling communities. Those are also very important. It's not just the, the political and, and legislative uh, wins either. Those are great things. And uh, I'm, I hope that my enthusiasm for the, the project and all its, its virtues comes through. And the way I'm framing it is that I, I'm criticizing the project and I'm starting my own organization that is, um, I think, complementary more than actually antagonistic to the FSP. Um, and why? So I, I think they'll, they'll get a lot out of it. I, I also intend to um, very... Uh, st strongly repudiate um, the uh, the types of third positionists, these keyboard waffen I encounter on Gab, who um, seem to um, desire supplanting Jews as predators upon white people um, more than the actual welfare of their their fellow white men. And I'm going to call them out on their utter hypocrisy and their wickedness, their um, their religious zealotry with regard to their own uh, ideology and their lack of maturity when it comes to um, very legitimate um, policy discussions concerning like issues of economics and the costs and benefits of things like prohibition. Um, I'm going to, to frame it as, um, as a, a mission to stop those kinds of people, these right-wing progressivists, from ever coming to power. Um, that it's, it's the adults in the room who, who need to take over. And I've been a, a big fan of... Um, Atlas Shrugged can position it as, as a story of my own that parallels uh, that of Rand's novel. Um, I, uh, I was inspired partially to venture down this rabbit hole into the radical libertarian and um, 
reactionary space uh, from having read Atlas Shrugged. And what Liber Liberty Plus is, is um, Ron Paul's remnant in society, uh, those of us uh, sane Westerners left, going galt. Um, we are no longer giving moral sanction to this like diseased system that does nothing but spit on us. Um, uh, we are going to comply to a large extent um, via the accelerationist uh, tactics I've described. Uh, Atlas Shrugged is a highly accelerationist novel, actually. And we, um, in the ashes of this uh, beast system that's collapsing, all around us are aiming to build something much better, much more humane, and much more civilized. Well, I, uh, I, I agree with you on the, um, the toxicity of the myopic focus on Jews and some, uh, some sectors of the alt-right. Um, I, I, re I recall, you know, I, it seemed to me that you anticipated that your organization might be accused of, of being a, a white supremacist group or, or something to that effect, and... Uh, you had a response to that on your website. Would you care to share it with the audience? So Liberty uh, Plus um, is not an organization for whites only. Now, the question is, is somewhat academic because um, the libertarian movement um, is, is homogeneously white, uh, greater than 90%. Very interesting historical and evolutionary reasons for this. But... We believe that the liberty movement is at its very strongest when united across racial lines. And um, though um, our ultimate objectives are primarily self-determination, voluntary segregation along um, racial ethnic lines, that doesn't mean we can't collaborate uh, toward that end um, so that we can all create happy little homelands for, for our own. Um, so uh, obviously there's going to be pushback uh, against that. Um, there are other segments in the, uh, on the right who, um, who want a certain kind of purity spiraling with um, regard to, to racial identity, but that's, that's not Liberty Plus. We are a hardcore um, ideological organization dedicated to the advancement of liberty and the liberation of the, the white race um, from our, it's our globalist oppressors, um, both as a means to protecting liberty, but also as an end in itself, just because, I mean, we were, we're self-interested individualists. We're taking our own side. You're uh, rejecting the, like the, the wicked religion of humanitarianism and humanism. Your, and, your conception and biodiversity is an end in itself, and white people are beautiful, innovative, um, imaginative, um, uh, productive, and, and uh, wonderful people. And uh, we don't want to see uh, such people ever diminish. The, uh, your conception of white people includes Jewish people, I gather? It would include um, civilized and assimilated Jewish people like uh, Ludwig von Mises and Ayn Rand, absolutely. And on your website, it says uh, one of your primary founders is half Jewish. That's you, correct? 
Yes, my mom is Jewish. Okay. All right, my friend, I, I appreciate a, uh, a, a very high-level discussion with you today. And uh, the website is libertypl.us, and from there they can find your Gab and your, um, and your, and your Telegram channel. You, you don't have—you're uh, you're not on Twitter. You're not on the mainstream social media platforms. You're, you are limiting yourself to these, uh, these alternatives? Nope. Um, uh, yep, free speech platforms only. Thank you very much uh, for joining us tonight. I'm going to, uh, uh, if there's anything else you want to get out there, do that. And then I will, uh, I'm going to play the outro music and wrap the show up. Thank you so much for having me on, Chris. Uh, It's been a fun conversation. Likewise. Thank you very much, my friend. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we do this every Monday. And I look forward to having you back here on uh, the next Monday. The Wednesday uh, members-only video chats is what we do for members-only. If you go to surrealpolitics.com slash join, you can become a member for uh, 10 bucks a month, but you can actually get a little cheaper than that if you so desire. Just use code AGENDA33. That'll get you 33% off for your first three months. And if you do that, when you're a member of Surreal Politics, uh, we have a shop there, surrealpolitics.com slash shop. When you're logged in, you're going to see the prices there are, like, dramatically different. So if you're somebody who followed me over here from the other show I do um, and you want to get a hoodie or a T-shirt or something like that, you buy one T-shirt, it'll be offset. uh, The cost of your membership will be offset by that. And so you should definitely go over to surrealpolitics.com slash join, and then you become a member. And then go to the shop and uh, place an order, and I'll ship you something. And that would be a great idea for you to do. And if you want to give me more money than that, there's ways for you to do that at surrealpolitics.com slash join. And so I look forward to seeing our members on Wednesday. And, of course, those of you who are following me elsewhere, I'll be uh, online for another production on Friday. And I look forward to speaking with all of you then when we do our open phones. Thank you very much for tuning in to Surreal Politics. Have yourselves a wonderful evening and good night.